Hello and welcome to Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet, a podcast about materials, the making instinct and a craftful life. This is episode 17 of the podcast and whether you are a returning listener or somebody who's tuning in for the first time, you are most welcome. I thought I would try to squeeze another short episode in before Christmas. I know this time is frenetic, particularly for carers, so I hope this episode can be a pocket of peace and enjoyment amid all the preparations, or an opportunity to breathe out once all the major lifting has been done. For anybody who is here for the first time, I'm Meg and based in London in the UK. In these podcasts, I reflect upon recent making projects, and I mean making in the widest possible sense. I explore not just the materials and process of my making, but also the tension between my love of making and my concerns about environmental and ethical issues. Just as the name suggests, curiosity is at the heart of my musings. If you want to follow my activities between episodes, you can find me on Instagram as Mrs M Curiosity Cabinet, and that is with an underscore between each word, and on Ravelry as Meg aka Mrs M, and that is with a hyphen between each word. I will link all this information, as well as anything I mention in the podcast, in my show notes. You can find these on my blog, mrsmscuriositycabinet.com. Before I launch into today's content, I wanted to say a heartfelt thank you for all your enthusiasm for the first issue of the Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet pamphlet. For new listeners, this pamphlet is an occasional collection of essays in which I expand on some of the themes I explore in the podcast. The first issue, called Product, Process and Practice, picked up and developed some of the ideas I explored in episode 15. Thank you to everybody who bought a copy, left a review on Etsy, shared it on social media or even just dropped me a note to say how much they enjoyed it. I'm the kind of person who spends a lot of time in my head and is all over the writing, editing and practical arrangements. But I hadn't really prepared myself emotionally for how touched I would be by readers' responses and support. I was tickled pink when I saw banter on Instagram about whether it's okay to make notes in the margins of the pamphlet, and the answer is most definitely yes. Or when I heard that people were rereading it, or when a friend told me that she was enjoying the collective reading experience with others and the conversations that it, it had started. All these kind observations, whether readers agree with the actual content or not, blew me away. I'm also doubly delighted with your enthusiasm as writing, producing and distributing this pamphlet with all the minutiae of decisions that went into it was a way of reclaiming a little bit of the pre-fibromyalgia me. I know that talking money can feel a bit icky, but we all have to exist in the world, so I also wanted to acknowledge that I'm very grateful for the financial support from the sales of the first print run of the pamphlet. They have covered hosting fees for my blog and podcasting full, paid for the shelves in my new tiny pottery studio, and are also covering the fee for a workshop related to my making practice that I will definitely come back and tell you about. If you would still like to get your hands on a copy of the pamphlet, my Etsy shop, which is Mrs M Curiosity Cabinet, is now restocked. If you prefer a digital copy, please follow the directions in the show notes that accompany episode 16 of the podcast. So what do I have in store today? Today's episode is a little different. As I have a tendency to be quite serious, I thought in this short, seasonally timed but non-seasonal episode, I would share some slightly more frivolous makes. What do I make to add a little luxury to my life? 
I have to admit, in light of my propensity for earnestness, I did question whether it would be appropriate to chat about frivolities and luxuries in light of recent developments globally and nationally. But as anybody whose work involves any form of activism, advocacy or caring knows, we need to take care of ourselves physically and mentally, especially if we are in for a long haul. So I hope you have a making project to hand as well as a drink of your choice, possibly even a seasonal tipple, and let's begin. Two recent knitting projects are more elaborate examples of the little luxury that knitting adds to my life. The Asana shawl and a Tickled by Your Smile shawl, both of which include more ornate lace than usual for me. I never really wore lace before I started knitting, not even on significant occasions like my wedding day. Some people look amazing in it, but on me it always looked slightly ridiculous. Even as a little girl, the nearest I got to lace was a little brotherly anglaise trim on a summer dress. Knitting changed that though. The size of lace patterns in knitting, even at a fine gauge, combined with the more substantial nature of wool as a material, produces a fabric that feels more in balance with my own mass and proportions. So knitted lace became a way to add frivolity and luxury to my wardrobe, both in everyday and more dressy items. My lace knitting is usually limited to simple designs like the fan and feather or tree of life motif in shawls, or a hint of lace around the yoke, waist or sleeves of a cardigan but occasionally I will go to town with something more involved, like this autumn. Objectively, knitting two lace shawls in a quarter is of course pretty frivolous in and of itself, but whilst both are quite ornate, they fulfil different purposes to each other, and to my collection of shawls. This collection consists of large haps that I wrap myself in like some Dickensian character to keep warm while carrying out sedentary activities. The two new shawls are quite different. The Asana shawl by Helen Stewart, aka Curious Handmade, is a moderately deep crescent shawl that I can wrap round the shoulders. It has a central panel of garter stitch and an ornate edge which reminds me of intricate stonework, curves and curlicues in tiers of arches. It is the kind of intricate lace design that elevates a go-to dress and cardigan ensemble to what passes as evening wear. The kind of shawl I would pop on when I go out to dinner or to the theatre or a concert. Anybody who likes the look of this shawl but is wary of lace knitting, don't be. Helen has a specific way of writing patterns that is very clear and user-friendly. As well as providing both written and charted instructions, she gives you the stitch count for each row and a percentage marker to help you manage your yarn usage. This shawl does need to be blocked quite aggressively to show off the lace and emphasise the border, and I definitely need to re-block mine. That's totally my fault though, as I rushed the initial blocking so I could wear it as soon as possible. As my asana shawl was intended for dressier occasions, I wanted to use a wool that was soft by my measure and had a luxuriously intense colour. I went with John Arbin's Harvest Hues Full Ply. This is a blend of 65% organically farmed Falklands Merino and 35% Devon's Warbles. Falkland Merino is known for its softness, but doesn't generally appeal to me. Yes, it is soft, but I find it lacks body and interest for my taste. It is like sinking into a lusciously soft pillow that has no support. By contrast, Zwartballs, a breed originating from the north of the Netherlands, has a more crisp and springy fleece with a fine to medium rather than a fine micron count. 
We're talking high 20s to mid 30s compared to the low 20s micron count of Merino, and that's according to the Fleece and Fibre Source Book. As such, adding some Zwart balls to Merino gives the overall yarn more texture and body. Another benefit of adding the Zwart balls is the effect on the colour. Zwart is the Dutch word for black, and these sheep are indeed primarily black or very dark, with a few stray white locks that add a hint of luster. As an aside, there is often some doubt about how to pronounce the breed name. In English, we typically say Zwarbles, pronouncing the B-L-E as we would in the words able or possible. But as a Dutch speaker, my instinct is to say Zwart Bles, which literally means black blaze. This is a fair description of the breed, as the sheep are black with a striking shot of white down their face. The Harvest Hues range, which is now available in both four-ply and worsted weight, comes in exquisite colours thanks to the depth and hint of luster that the Zwartbals brings. As the name suggests, the range involves rich autumnal colours in hues of ochre, russet, warm red and berries, but also some really tantalising blues and greens. I made the shawl in the pomegranate shade, a deep warm red reminiscent of the flesh of the fruit. I dithered between the russet, bracken and pomegranate for ages, but ultimately went with the red so it would match some simple garnet stud earrings I inherited from my mum, and which I tend to wear when I get dressed up. For completeness, the Harvest Hues 4-ply is a worsted spun yarn and comes in skeins of 100 grams, which gives you 400 metres, or approximately 440 yards. It currently costs £14, and I use just over one and a half skeins to knit the Asana shawl. My second lace project, the Tickled by Your Smile shawl by Yellow Cosmo, is a design that has been in my Ravelry favourites for many years. It is also a crescent shawl, but longer and not quite so deep. Whilst the Asana shawl sits on the shoulders, this second one is a kind of shawl that I can wrap round my neck several times and then either tuck under itself or into a sweater. This very much ties in with how I intend to use it. Whilst I specifically made Helen's shawl design for dressy occasions, I also wanted a pretty shawl that I could wear as I was going about physical activities because I tend to run cold when I'm pottering in a damp garden or working with clay. If the Asana shawl reminds me of arches, the Tickled by Your Smile shawl makes me think of intricate wrought iron work on gates, or even stylized natural hedges of thorns or willows, thanks to the trellis-like weave of left and right slanting stitches and the yarn overs. The pattern looks complicated, but is actually incredibly logical and clearly written. As long as you mark the middle point of the shawl and have a good light source, this pattern is a delight to knit. As this shawl is intended to keep chills from my neck, whilst also being aesthetically pleasing, I opted for a different type of wool, one with more grip and heartiness. I had considered using Shetland wool, but I thought the intricacy of the pattern would benefit from a worsted spun yarn, rather than a lofty woollen. So I settled on Pip Colourwork, a wool developed by Bar Ram U for colourwork, but also suitable for lace. And based on my experience, it has good stitch definition. The Pip Colourwork yarn is an unspecified blend of 100% British wool, spun and dyed in Yorkshire. Like the Shetland Colourwork wools, it comes in small balls, in this case 25 gram balls of 116 metres or 125 yards, and it currently retails at £3.40 per ball.
Pip colour work doesn't feel as soft as the two Jameson wools in the hand, but that's partly because it's not a lofty woolen spun yarn. It feels drier and crisper, but most of that crispness yields with blocking and also wearing when the wool responds to our own body heat. I find this shawl heartily cosy and it definitely does a trick of keeping me warm when engaged in chilly or damp work. If you don't like wearing the Shetland wools next to your skin or around the neck, this is probably not the yarn for shawls for you, but I have absolutely no qualms about using it again. As with the Harvest Hues, I was spoilt for choice when it came to colours. Baram U has a colour range that it rolls out across its various yarn ranges, and which looks very different depending on the blend. The colours in the Pip Colourwork range are more heathered, and as far as I'm concerned, are more interesting than in Baram U's original Titus blend. For this shawl, I went with Earthy Dolby Green, which probably sounds a bit unusual for me, but it actually picks up on the colour of my eyes. Using an intricate lace pattern in a workaday shawl may sound like an odd thing to do, but I suppose that's exactly where I find little luxuries. If I spend a fair amount of time engaged in physical activities in a damp setting, why not combine practicality, warmth and aesthetic pleasure, not to mention the hours of joy in making such an item? We often think of luxury as something that is head-turning, noteworthy, out of the ordinary, expensive or exclusive. But I like to think of luxury as the little unobtrusive things and moments that lift the spirit, even when going about our mundane business, and that celebrate our ability to be delighted by the seemingly inconspicuous. Also, as anybody who feels the cold, whether due to the circumstances or physical makeup, will know, feeling warm and cosy is a real luxury. And as strange as it may seem, woolen lace plays a remarkably useful role in this respect. I know it seems odd that garments and accessories full of holes can help one feel warm, but think of hospital blankets, thermal vests and even modern sports base layers made of technical fibres. One of the things they all have in common is the hole-like structure to their fabric. When we layer such textiles on our bodies, the holes create pockets in which air is captured. This air warms up in response to our own body heat, and it is actually this trapped air that helps keep us warm. So although wearing a lace woolen shawl round my neck while digging in the garden may look an out-of-place luxury, or even plain daft, the laws of physics actually mean my moderately luxurious shawl is keeping me nice and toasty. The kitchen is another space where making produces little luxuries. I love cooking and baking, but I'm not an elaborate baker or pastry chef. As lovely as beautifully iced cakes, rich gateaus and decadent desserts may look on the page, they are not the kind of thing that I prepare for several reasons. First, they are only really worth making for a larger group, as they tend to go off quickly. Secondly, Mr M and I prefer savoury flavours, so rarely have space for a rich dessert. Thirdly, as we aim to eat as seasonally as possible, the kind of fruits needed to make such sweet treats aren't available fresh in the cooler seasons when our bodies might crave such richness. And lastly, which is probably the overriding reason, when you eat wholesome homemade meals most of the time, particularly ones that include freshly grown or foraged ingredients, the need for luxurious food in the conventional sense wanes. The intense flavour of fresh ingredients in simple dishes is a luxury in and of itself. 
That's not to say that I don't make little seasonal treats that feel like true luxuries. Whilst not complicated or over the top, their luxuriousness lies in part in their seasonal rarity, like the meringue nests with the first local raspberries in early summer, or candied peel dipped in black chocolates as a Christmas treat, or gingerbread, a memory of childhood comfort and safety which I only ever bake between bonfire night in early November and Shrove Tuesday, which usually falls in February. This year I added another little culinary luxury to our repertoire, one that has a couple of additional welcome features, a very long shelf or rather fridge life and the joy of being practically free, i.e. fruit leather. I actually made two varieties as I enjoyed the process and the results so much. Plum leather from an excess of plums from a friend's garden and apple and bramble leather made from foraged brambles and a gift of windfall bramlies from another friend's garden. Fruit leather is a fruit preserve but very different from jams, compots, jellies or butters. Fruit leather looks exactly as it sounds. It's a very thin, pliable layer of preserved fruit puree that you nibble, chew or suck the way you would eat sweet or candy. What, my darling? Are you coming to wish listeners Merry Christmas? Or is it just that you want your lunch? Hmm? Can you get off my notes? Yeah? If you get off my oats, we'll give you some food later. Okay. Do you have anything else to say to the listeners? No? Just a purr? Okay, let's take you off the table. Sorry about that little interruption. Fruit leathers are ridiculously simple to make. They are a great way to use up overripe fruit, involve minimal sugar as you are dehydrating them rather than aiming for a set, and can be tweaked and flavoured to taste. The process involves gently simmering down the fruit with no more than one or two tablespoons of water depending on the water content of the fruit itself. You then puree the fruit with a blender and pass it through a sieve or moulie into another saucepan. This step is the most physical one of the process. Once done, you weigh the puree and work out how much sugar you want to add. You're aiming for somewhere between a sixth and a quarter of the weight of the puree depending on your preference and the natural sweetness of the fruit. You don't need to be fussy about the type of sugar. I would opt for caster sugar, the very fine sugar you use when baking a cake, or even powdery icing sugar, as both of these dissolve quickly. Return the pan to the stove and dissolve the sugar into the puree over a low heat. At this stage, depending on your fruit, it's possible that the mix will look a quite unappetising colour, but don't worry, just add in your flavouring once the sugar has dissolved. You can really go to down with spices like vanilla, cinnamon, ginger, mace and so on, but I kept ours really simple, just adding several tablespoons of lemon juice to give the leathers a sweet sharp blend of flavour, a bit like the sherbet sweets I used to eat as a child. Taste the puree as you go and adjust the sugar and flavouring levels to taste. Then spread the puree in very thin layers on silicon sheets or baking trays lined with baking parchment. You want a layer that's no thicker than, say, 5mm or a quarter of an inch. Then pop the trays into an oven or dehydrator that has been preheated to about 70 degrees centigrade, which is about 158 Fahrenheit. Drying is a slow process and timings vary depending on the water content of the fruit, the thickness of the layer and also the climactic conditions of your area. 
A general starting point is about eight hours in a dehydrator to around 18 to 20 hours in a conventional oven. You are aiming for the leather to have a hint of tackiness rather than a sticky feel. And don't worry if you need to commandeer the oven to cook dinner. Short interruptions will not do the leathers any harm. Once the leather is dehydrated, you should be able to peel it away from the parchment or sheet quite easily. If you made a large batch, you can roll the leathers up in the parchment and store them in sealed boxes in the freezer. Or you can tear them into pieces and pop them in an airtight container in the fridge where they will keep quite happily for months, unless of course your sweet tooth gets the better of you. When storing fruit leathers this way, I would coat the leather with a fine layer of icing sugar. Not for added sweetness, but rather to make it easier to peel the layers of leather apart. Making fruit leather may sound like a lot of time and effort for a sweet treat that doesn't look as fancy as off-the-shelf sweets, but the time and homemade look are most definitely worth it. Our leathers are chewy, slightly sweet, deliciously zingy and wonderfully intense. The low levels of added sugar mean there is a much greater immediacy and complexity to the fruit flavour than we would get in a jam or a compote. And if you don't eat sweets on a regular basis, they make a luxurious grown-up sweet treat. Although I suspect children would enjoy them also. People often think of making as an involved process. Something that involves a range of materials and tools, a long process and special skills or experience. Sometimes this is the case, but as far as I'm concerned, there is another type of making, a much simpler form of making, or perhaps it would be better to say a wider perspective on making. The kind of making that has happened down the ages in physics gardens. The use of plants, sometimes processed, sometimes in their raw form, for specific purposes. And it's a kind of making that can produce some simple, unexpected moments of luxury. I rarely use scented toiletries or cleaning products. I found that the more I cut them out for allergy and environmental reasons, the more I struggled with their synthetically produced fragrances. And since developing fibromyalgia, synthetic scents are something that jangle my overhyped sensory system and add to the fatigue. So much so that I will cross the road to avoid certain shops or move seats if somebody is wearing an overpowering perfume or eau de Cologne on public transport. This antipathy to such products does not mean I dislike fragrances or that I don't appreciate the potential role of scents on our body and mood. If anything, my sensitivity to artificial scents means I appreciate natural fragrances with their various benefits all the more. For years I've been using lavender sachets in my linen drawers and hanging a sprig of rosemary under the shower head on mornings that I feel particularly sluggish. Rosemary is a mild stimulant and the heat of the shower further releases the aromas in the oil and can help me start the day. And this year I discovered a particularly joyful addition to my natural scent repertoire. I'm continuously experimenting in the garden with ways of how to meet more and more of our culinary preferences from homegrown produce. There are some things we can't grow due to climate or simply because we don't have the space for them. For example, rose water for the kitchen and bathroom. But I've discovered a plant that can fill that role in part. This year I treated us to a scented geranium, in particular the attar of roses variety. The flowers of scented geraniums are not as blousy as those of other geranium varieties, but their scents more than make up for it, and that is certainly the case with the attar of roses variety. 
The leaves can be used to infuse syrups for desserts or cakes and can turn the humble sponge pudding or cake into a summery treat. Or they can be used to flavour homemade Turkish delight, a luxury sweet Mr M enjoys. But I've also found another luxurious purpose for this plant. In the UK, a lot of geraniums, including the scented geranium family, needs to be brought in for the winter as they are not hardy. These plants grow quite happily in pots, but they do become quite sprawling. So, one way to manage the space over winter is to take cutting from the plants in late summer. This not only creates additional plants for next season, it also reduces the overall size of the plant when overwintering it. When taking cuttings, I found the scent that the leaves released when I brushed up against them so soothing that I decided to use them in the bathroom. I occasionally use baths as part of pain management and to help relax my overhyped sensory system. And on those occasions, I'll pick a couple of leaves off the scented geranium and pop them into the bathtub. Hot water releases the oils and scents in the leaves and produces a luxurious fragrance, one that smells much more lush than any commercial bubble bath and is quite heady but in a relaxing way. Occasionally picking a few leaves off the scented geranium for luxury purposes also has a very practical benefit. It prompts the plant to create new side shoots, which will make for a bushier plant next season. I am by no means an expert in herbs and herbalism, and don't really spend much time making complex toiletries. But I love how, with a little experimenting and patience, I can make a garden, flavoured food, and simple luxurious scents for around the home. Things that nurture me on many levels. As I said earlier, I did question whether talking about luxuries is appropriate in light of the many worrying man-made developments around the world. The more I think about it, finding luxury in minimally processed, quite readily available natural resources can actually be wonderfully subversive. They can be little acts of constructive rebellion and yet another way to reshape social expectations and practice. Another way of taking back a little bit of control from corporations that tell us what we need and want to keep us spending. I think that that's probably a good point to sign off for this year. If you celebrate Christmas or Hanukkah, I wish you a joyous time. And if you find the festive season a trying time for whatever reason, I empathise. Please take good care of yourself and don't force cheer if it's not there. I wish all of you the very best for a healthy and happy 2020 and may you enjoy lots of pleasant hours of making, whatever your medium may be. Thank you.